I told him God's word is all God breathes, so it's, it's enough for you. So you'll, you'll be all right. Um, but no, I, I feel like when you come to Genesis 1, there's so much there that every time I come to the, the passage, even as I was preparing to, to teach, and I said this week, you know, let's jump in. But then I'm like, well, there's so much there to talk about before we jump in. Because the goal here is not just to rush through something. The goal here is to make us all, all of us, better followers of Jesus, right? Um, uh, my, my, uh, one of the things I wrote in the front of my Bible was, Lord, don't make me a better scholar. Make me a better believer. And so that's the goal of all of this, that we're better believers. And we're going to be better believers, better followers of Jesus when we better understand his word. And what I see so often that uh, mistakes that are made is how people don't understand what's going on with the Bible. You know, they just simple understanding of how to interpret this. And so they're trying to apply things that shouldn't be applied that way. They're trying to do things that shouldn't be done this way. And so we want to make sure that we have our, our, at least a bearing of how to understand and interpret this. And especially when it comes to Genesis 1 in this beginning, because um, it's so important. It's so important. So I'm going to do something real quick. We started last week. We saw the, the, that theology that's there in Genesis 1-1 of who God is and, and, and how he is, has come for us in this way and then what it means for us, how, how God is timeless, how he's independent, how he is all-powerful, and now what does that mean for us as we're under his authority that we have this as our reality and that the Lord shows us in Genesis 1-1 our purpose. And so as we do that, now we're going to jump into these six days of creation. And so there's a couple interpretive things I want us to think about. And I'm going to talk fast. And some of you all have already told me I talk fast. But it's on a podcast. You can go back and listen and pause it or whatever you want to do or not. Um, I want to talk about first some matters of interpretation. And the thing uh, that we need to discuss that's going to kind of build on, on itself to where we'll get to where we're going, and you'll see, and hopefully it'll make sense. There's a, a thing called doctrinal triage or theological triage. Now, triage is a great word, T-R-I-A-G-E. And I learned about triage not from a doctor. I learned about it from watching MASH, actually <laughs> secretly watching, watching MASH when I wasn't supposed to. And so uh, the word triage, when you, when you do that, is a, a medical term that you are trying to figure out what is most important. So you have a lot of people coming into the emergency, emergency room. You quickly evaluate. We, you see which ones need care the quickest, which ones are primary cases. And so you have to do this triage. And whenever we're looking at God's word, there is a theological triage to be done. And that's important for us to remember because it really, it really helps us understand how we relate to each other in our beliefs as well. There's the primary doctrines, the primary doctrines. And primary doctrines are the doctrines that make us Christians. In other words, if you don't have these doctrines, then you're not a, you're not a Christian. You're not a believer. And I just can spit some of those out. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, uh, one God, three persons, all of them co-equal, all of them eternal. You know, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is basic to what it means to be a Christian. You add to that then the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. 
if Jesus is not fully God, then he's not the Savior and we're not Christians anymore. Does that make sense? If he is not fully man, then he's not capable to stand between us and God and he's not fit to redeem us as fully God and fully man. You have to have both the full deity of Jesus and the full humanity of Jesus. Not 50-50, 100-100, complete together. And so if you don't have that, then you're not a believer. And there's many... There's many um, beliefs or world religions out there that want to purport Jesus but do not have a full deity of Jesus. And, and so therefore they're not Christian religions. And, and to follow that religion is not to be a follower of Jesus because of who he is in his word. This is a primary doctrine. You can also have the authority of scripture, the inerrancy and authority of scripture. Like scripture is the ultimate authority that we turn to. That's a primary doctrine in my mind. You have to have an authority. God's word is primary for us. Justification by faith. If you think you can add anything to your salvation other than just simply believe and, and putting your faith in Jesus, then you're not a, according to this word, you're not a believer. You can't do this by your own works, by your own strength. This is primary doctrine. You can even have, I believe, the, uh, the sinfulness of men and women and the need for salvation. These are primary doctrines. Even when you think about the doctrine of Christ, you know, his virgin birth, that's a primary doctrine. When I say deity and, and humanity, the virgin birth, the sinless life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, these are all primary doctrines. And if you don't believe these, then you're not a Christian, okay? If you don't believe these, then you're not a Christian. But then there's secondary doctrines. If you're doing the triage, these are primary. These are what makes us Christian. Secondary doctrines are the things that believers, Christians can believe um, and be different upon, if you will. But when you believe these, there's going to be boundaries that come up. When it comes to secondary doctrines, those are mostly what we believe as a church, for example. We believe that baptism is by immersion for believers only. There are other Christians out there who believe differently than us, right? And while I'm not saying they're not believers, I am saying that it's hard for us to join together in a body as a church and have different beliefs on what it means to be a believer and what it means to be obedient to him. So secondary doctrines or secondary issues in theology are things that create denominations, Things that create denominations. This is why you see different denominations out there because people believe differently on how do you become a member of a body, a member of a church. And even going farther than, or further than that, excuse me, they believe differently on how you structure the church. Are you an autonomous church that is congregational led, ruled? Or are you ruled by a certain body or a certain group? Do you have a, a synod and a general assembly that you have to answer to? A bishop that you have to follow? Some sort of order or hierarchy of structure that you have to adhere to? Do you have those things? You can be a Christian and disagree on how you order the, the church. You can be a Christian and disagree on how you order the church, but you can't disagree on how you order the church and be in the same church together. Does that make sense? Secondary issues are what creates denominations. Now, there's a third thing that you, we, we have, and that's the tertiary. Tertiary is a great word to use because it makes you sound real smart. Tertiary issues, primary, secondary, tertiary. Tertiary issues are doctrines that you can be a good believer and we can be different on them and disagree and still be in unity together as a body. Still be in unity together as a body. Uh, for example, 
And, and I just use a couple of these. There's primary beliefs that we have, but there's tertiary ways that we believe those things will happen, right? Maybe I can do it this way. Consider the end times. There are good and faithful believers that believe Jesus is coming back bodily for his people. We're good and faithful believers that believe that Jesus is coming back and he wins, right? How that happens, they may differ on. Some in, in there, out there may believe there's a seven-year tribulation and a thousand-year reign, and you got this, that, and the other. And you, most in this room, may believe that. But there's other good believers who say, no, there's not a seven-year tribulation. There's just a thousand-year reign, and you have this. These are matters of interpretation about how all of these things laid out. The primary issues, they believe Jesus is returning and he wins. The tertiary issue is how all of that lays out as a matter of interpretation. Does that make sense? You can still worship together. You don't have to fight. Nobody has to throw a punch. You can say, oh, that's cool. That's a different interpretation. I understand that. And you can still be a part of a body. You can be in a small group together, a life group together, discuss these issues because these are not primary issues. That, that differentiate between you whether or not you're a Christian. They're not secondary issues that may say you need to, you know, join up with another group that believes those things. They're tertiary issues that you can all, we can all be good Christians and disagree on how some of this lays out. Does everybody get that? Does everybody understand? That's the triage that we have to do. And we have to be ready and willing to identify those tertiary issues because what happens oftentimes in churches is we get to fighting over things that we can just disagree on and be okay with it. Does that make sense? We, can, we don't have to fight about this. These are disagreements of interpretation that do not strike at the primary issue that we have to hold to together. That we have to hold to together. Now that's important. Because that really brings us to our lesson tonight. I feel like this microphone keeps dipping on me. Do y'all think? Maybe it's my breath. I don't know. But I feel like I'm chasing it. All right, maybe that'll work. This brings us to our... That's louder. This brings us to our lesson tonight. Um, primary for us, as we look to God's Word in Genesis 1, primary is the fact that God created the universe out of nothing simply by his word, simply by speaking it into existence. That is primary. It, it's out of nothing. I think that is an important point. There wasn't something that he started fiddling with. He created everything out of nothing, and he did so simply by his word, by speaking he did so by speaking. I believe that is primary. Now, how that happens could be really, in some ways, some things that good and faithful Christians can disagree on. Now, don't get me wrong. Adam is real. We'll talk about that in a minute. There's things in there you have to believe. But how this lays out, maybe good and faithful Christians can disagree on. And that's what I want to bring up this this evening. Now, don't get me wrong. When it comes to views of creation, we have to be an understanding here. Evolution is the real enemy, right? Evolution is, is just plain wrong. It leads to disaster. As one philosopher says, if you believe in that, you're basically unhitching, unhitching the earth from the sun. And when you unhitch the earth from the sun, chaos ensues, right? 
And so we're reaping the benefits of that chaos of about 100 years now of teaching this like it is fact in our society. That's the ultimate. Theistic evolution, I believe, does not fit in with the scriptures. I don't believe you can hold to it, really, to be honest. Now, don't get me wrong. There's some good, uh, there's some good people out there that believe theistic evolution that are Christians. And we even, some of them you listen to and you talk to, and they have nuances about it. When I look at the text, though, I just can't see how it would work. Now, theistic evolution is the idea that God created everything, and then everything started happening by natural process from that in an evolutionary process. Okay? And so I just don't see how that works. That's a theory of creation, and we can discuss that. We'll discuss that a little bit more as well. I think it has some major, major problems, um, not the least of which is the fact that, that uh, everything was created not just by the Word of God, but by mediating factors after God spoke, and I got a problem with that. Uh, there's another theory out there called the gap theory of creation. The gap theory is simply, you look at Genesis 1, 1 and 2, and there's this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, the gap theory is, states that between verse 2 and verse 3 in Genesis was possibly eons of time. Millions of years. There's a huge gap between verse 2 and verse 3. So anything that looks old, they, they, they put it on that gap, right? It's like charge it to the gap. Y'all get what I'm talking about right there? And so we'll charge that to the gap. If you have a problem with the age of the earth, we'll charge that to the gap. We'll put that there. And that seeks to alleviate what they see as difficulties for us as we consider the age of the earth and other things. I don't think the gap theory works. I don't think it works. Um, I think the Christian understanding of creation is a six-day creation that we find in Genesis 1. It's a six-day creation. So the, uh, evolution, I, I don't believe, of course, obviously does not fit. Theistic evolution is not a healthy view of Genesis 1, in my opinion. The gap theory is just... Uh, a way around and sidestepping some difficult passages in the text and wrestling with some things. I think the only way to truly see creation in Genesis 1 faithfully to the text is a six-day creation. Now, when you talk about a six-day creation then, this is not a debate over the inspiration of the Bible. Everybody who believes in that six-day creation believes that God's Word is inspired. It's not a debate over um, the the... In this debate, if you will, the time of creation is not as important as the fact of creation, the fact that God created, the fact that he made. And good Christians, I think, can still be on different sides of how they view the six-day creation. So if we're building on this together, you have to do theological triage. We know what's primary. We know what's primary. We know what's tertiary, right? I believe a six-day creation is part of that understanding of, crea of creation that is uh, as close to primary as you can possibly get in understanding the text. Okay? Now, tertiary is how does that six-day creation work out? And within, within that, there's basically three different views. And then I'll tell you what my view is. Don't worry. Y'll We'll get to it. The first one is a 24-hour view. A 24-hour day view. God created the universe 
and all life in six sequential days, six 24-hour days, marked by evenings and mornings, 144 hours, God creates everything. That's a literal 24-hour day view of how it works. Um, the next is what's called a day-age view. What this says is that it's six days, agrees, and they agree that the six days are sequential. One, two, three, four, five, six. The difference is that the days in Genesis 1 are not 24 hours, but six sequential ages of unspecified time. So the day does not mean 24 hours. It means basically a period of time, an eon of time. Does everybody get what I'm saying? So while it says day, it's not meaning 24 hours. It's meaning a long stretch of time. The day, the day age view, the day age view. The third is the framework view, the literary framework view. The days of Genesis 1 form a figurative framework in which the work of creation are narrated in a topical rather than sequential order. In other words, what you have in Genesis 1 is a literary device to help us understand what happened at creation. It may not be exactly uh, how it went down. God still created. He spoke it out of nothing. But this Genesis 1 is a literary device to help you understand what happened at creation. Now, there's some things in that we can, we can see. Those are the three views that I believe good Christians good Christians have on the issue of creation. Now, there are three things, again, I'm giving y'all like 17 threes tonight, I know it. Just go back and listen to it. When it comes to interpretation, I got three rules. One, what's the plain reading of the text? What does the text say? Oftentimes, we try to make it more complicated than it is. What does the Bible say? What's the plain reading of the text? And plain reading of the text is going to consider the context that it's in, where it's at, what it's doing. It'll consider all those things. But what is, let's, we, we oftentimes want to make things more complicated than they have to be. Now, surely, there are some passages in Scripture that are difficult to understand. Y'all know who said that? Peter himself. Peter, when he's writing about Paul's writings, he says some of his writings are difficult to understand. But you know what he says? As are the other scriptures. First thing he does is he puts Paul's writings on equal level as the rest of scripture. And he says sometimes they're hard to understand. So when the plain reading of the text is not there and maybe too hard to understand, you got the second principle that scripture is the best interpreter of scripture. We oftentimes go quickly to the commentary and what somebody else says. I'll tell y'all what my um, Hebrew professor kept saying in the Old Testament every time I asked him a question. Josh, you need to read your Bible more, you know? <laughs> Just keep reading your Bible. Just keep reading your Bible. And in so many ways, he was right. When you kept reading your, reading your Bible, some of those passages that you see as difficult here make sense over here. And you start putting these things together and you start looking because the Bible is the best interpreter of itself. The Bible is the best interpreter of itself. And third, understand everything within the grand narrative of Christ Jesus and, his, and redemption in him. Even Genesis 1. Everything is understood in that grand narrative. You can't pull it out of that. You can't pull it out of that. Those three things help me as I interpret as I look to Scripture, that 
What's the plain reading of the text? What does the text say? And if that's difficult to even decipher, then what does the rest of Scripture say? Scripture interprets Scripture. And then when we understand that, then how does this fit into the grand scheme and narrative and help me understand it? Because of that, because of that, um, I would say to you tonight that I believe the best way to understand Genesis 1 is a 24-hour literal day view. And, and, and I know that some people have questions with this, but I, I just can't get over a couple things here. First of all, the plain reading of the text. I mean, when you read it, doesn't it read like it's a week? I mean, this is how we would describe it if this was our work week. You know, I did this on this day, and then the sun set and the sun rose the next day. I got up day two. You see what I'm saying? When you read this passage, the plain reading of the text seems to be that this was a week that he's getting up. God said, let there be light. There was light, and there was morning, and there was, it was evening, there was morning the first day. And then he goes on, and he does the next day, and he does the next day. In fact, I believe that the plain reading of the text here is so obvious that I think people do too many cartwheels trying to get around it. They try to get around it. Now, hear me when I say this. I do not believe that excludes the literary framework view entirely. I still believe, while there's a 24-hour literal creation here, I still believe that the author is putting this together in such a way that helps us remember things in a literary framework. Now, what do I mean by that? We'll see this as we look. But when we look at this passage, you'll see the forming and then the filling. The first three days, he forms things. The next three days, he fills them. Y'all see what I'm saying? And so there's a literary device here that's taking place to help us remember and see what's going on. Remember, when this was written down, we shouldn't be surprised by this either, because when this was written down, it was an oral tradition. It wasn't like they were taking it to the printing press or putting it on the blog or even doing anything else. Moses wrote this down, and then they would read it out loud to the people because there wasn't a printing press. There wasn't a mass reproduction of these things. So as you read it, how much better would it be to hear it in that idea of forming and filling, right? God formed the skies, and then the next time you come back, he puts the stars in them. He, he, he does this. Also, you see creation happen in what I would call like a house. Um, you have the heavens above. He forms. You have the earth beneath, as it says, and then you have the waters under. Whenever throughout Scripture, whenever the whole universe is referred to, it'll be referred to in that way. I couldn't find them in the heavens, the earth, or the waters. I couldn't. For example, Revelation 5, 4, whenever the scroll is presented, right, and John's looking around, and what does he say? I looked in the heavens, I looked on the earth, and I looked under the earth. And I could not find anyone worthy to open that scroll. John's saying that because he is using this framework that begins in Genesis 1 to say, I looked all over the universe and there was no one able to open the scroll. Because that's the framework that's laid out from the beginning of creation. So I do believe there's that literary framework that is there. I do believe that. At the same time, I believe these are six literal days because of the plain reading of the text. Um, which brings me to my next part. Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. So 
If you look in Genesis 1, the word used there for day is the word yom. The word yom. It'd be transliterated Y-O-M, yom. Hebrew word yom. It means day. Every other time that word is used in the Old Testament, what does it refer to? A 24-hour literal day, right? Every other time. Every other time it's used, it's referred to that. In fact, in Exodus chapter 20, it's used to refer to creation. And whenever, in Exodus 20, y'all remember what's in Exodus 20? That's a Bible quiz right there. Ten Commandments, y'all got to know that stuff. Whenever you have the Ten Commandments and he's using the Sabbath, he said in six days, yams, right? The Lord created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh, what? Day, he rested. Whenever the Israelites are hearing that, what are they hearing? 24-hour day, a week. They're hearing it in the plain reading of what it is. And so when you see every other time in Scripture, the word day refers to that. So you're having to make a leap to say day means something different right here, that it doesn't mean anywhere else in the rest of God's Word. And that's just a difficult leap. I don't want to necessarily make that, right? I don't want to, I don't want to make that leap. Now, the problem for most of everybody is the science. Oh, Lord, after last year, I hate the fact that I'm standing up here and talking about the science. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but the problem for everybody is the science. The science in it is what causes the confusion in all of these positions. Ultimately, everybody's trying to accommodate what we see out there, right? So if we argue that there's a 24 literal days, 24-hour literal days, six in a row, then pretty much you're going to have to come to a conclusion that the earth overall is young. It's a young earth. And when you come to a young earth conclusion, now you've got a lot of science you've got to deal with, right? And so what happens for people is they bail out on that young earth conclusion. I'm not, wanna, I'm not judging them. They bail out on that young earth conclusion and they turn to things like the gap theory. Well, that explains the ice age. And they turn to things like day-age theory. Well, that explains how the dinosaurs were here and that they existed and they all died. And that explains that because these days were longer. That explains those things. And so when they have to deal with the science, they turn to those issues. But I believe when we read the Bible and the Bible interprets the Bible, we're helped for these things. First of all, let's remember something. And we talked about this two weeks ago. The Bible is not a science book. It's not trying to be a science book. The Bible does not contradict. It's true in everything it says, so it does not contradict science. But it's not looking for precision on things, right? It's not trying to speak scientifically. about. In other words, if the Bible, we talked about this, if the Bible was simply trying to look to precision to be an exact science book, it would not use the word sunset because the sun doesn't set, right? It would not use those things because it's trying, but it's not, it's not looking to do that. The focus is not necessarily on how God created here in Genesis 1. It's the fact that he did create. And so what we see happening is we just have to give, I believe, as Christians, we have to give a reasonable answer to many of the things in science. Now, I'm not going to try to do that right now because some of y'all probably are ready to stump me and what about this mushroom that grows in Brazil that proves the earth has to be 7,000 years older than what you think. Yeah, I'm not interested. I don't care. But <laughs> here's what I will say. 
One of the things the scientists never take into equation whenever they're trying to age the earth, they never take it into equation, is a worldwide catastrophic flood. They never consider that. And if you consider a worldwide catastrophic flood and see what water damage can do, right, in just matters of moments, then I promise y'all, I, I'm no scientist. I'm not. I'm not a geologist. I don't even try to be. I'm not even, I don't even really ever talk about this maybe tonight. But the Grand Canyon can be created in a moment if you have a earth covered entirely by water. In a moment. We've seen those type of things happen in localized mass flooding, flash flooding. Dinosaur bones can be picked up and carried across the world and buried in sediment in the middle of Oklahoma, for all we know, if there is a worldwide catastrophic flood, right? And so those are things scientists never take into equation. Why? Because they don't believe it. They don't believe in that supernatural thing. But we as Christians, right, don't we believe it? I mean, if Genesis 6, I believe this is how God judged the earth, right? So I believe in a worldwide catastrophic flood. I believe there was not a stitch, an ounce, a grain of sand that was showing anywhere on this planet as Noah and his friends were on the ark with two of the animals. Not all the animals, by the way. I don't believe every animal that existed at the time got on the ark. Unicorns didn't make it. Y'all know what I'm saying? They didn't get on there. I saw a t-shirt one time, but I didn't think I could wear a t-shirt about unicorns. But it said, it said on there, Dear Noah, we thought the boat left at five. <laughs> Sincerely, unicorns. You know what I'm saying? Well, that's a good shirt, but I can't. just couldn't bring myself to wear a shirt about unicorns. Um, but we don't, we don't believe that every one of them had to get on there. Just what God wanted to preserve. Because who brought the animals to the ark? God did. The scripture tells us that. He brought them there. And so we can see those things. By the way, I've got zero problem. I may be sounding like a Neanderthal to some of you guys. I got zero problem with saying that human beings lived with dinosaurs. None. I mean, I live with tigers. How many times have I seen a tiger in the wild? Never in my life. The only way I know it exists is because I go to Riverbank Zoo in Columbia, right? <laughs> I never see those things. We don't interact with all the animals that we see on the planet all the time. By the way, did you know every ancient culture in the world has dinosaur stories? Stories of epic battles with great reptiles? Did you know that? Every single ancient culture in the world has those things. Why? Because those stories probably have been passed down. And so my point is, science doesn't take into effect everything the Bible says when it comes to geology. Now, one of the places that always gets people is in the heavens, the stars, because those stars are so far away that the light we're seeing them actually was sent 27 trillion years ago. That's, that blows my mind. Y'all know, you know what I'm talking about. That light could have been, that star could have burned out 26 trillion years ago, and we're still seeing it bright. And so some people say, well, if that's the case, then obviously that looks like that light carries information right? And so that information is not real. So it, maybe it looks like God's being deceptive. But read passages in scripture. Read passages in scripture like Isaiah 42, where it says the earth put the stars in the sky and then spread them out like a curtain. And what do we see whenever we see uh, the universe? And what does every, every major astronomer testify to is that the creation, the universe is expanding and it's expanding rapidly, right? 
Every one of them says this. And so if that's the case, they could have started out in, 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 the, in the middle and then grown out as they go. We got no way to measure that. But God's word and scripture, interpret scripture, gives us a satisfactory answer, right? It gives us a satisfactory answer. It doesn't have to answer it dead on and say, here's how I did it. Bam, bam, bam. He does tell us he knows every one of them by name. And he does tell us in that sense that if he knows them all by name, he hung them in the sky. He put them where they are. And it does tell us that he spreads the universe out like a curtain. And so ultimately, my point is, I've got the plain reading of the text that, te that tells me I believe that this is a 24-hour literal day. Not only that, I've got the rest of Scripture contributing to that and building upon that and showing us that. I'm not sitting here, I don't have to be bound up by scientists who tell me that it's actually billions of years old and this age did this and that age did that. I've got the text, I don't have to be bound up with those things because those things ultimately don't matter for my third point and that is the, the curve or arc or redemptive story in scripture with Christ at the center. There's a couple things you've got a problem with if you say the earth's old. One. Where does death come from? In Scripture, in Romans chapter 5, it tells us that death entered through who? Adam. One man. Because one man sinned. But if you have an old earth theory, the reason why you're doing that is you're saying things died before Adam did. You have to have retro death, if you will. And that's exactly what happens is they say things die. Well, the Scripture teaches us what? That death entered into this universe that God created through what? Sin. By the way, Adam cannot be, I think if you hold to redemptive history as the scripture lays it out, Adam cannot be just a parable. He can't be just a fake person that kind of gives us an idea of what's going on. Because Romans chapter 5 tells us what? Adam was real and Adam sinned. And because Adam sinned, sin was passed down to all of Adam's children, which is who? Us. Sin was passed down to all of Adam's children, which is us. And because Adam sinned, now we are all in sin and we have sinned. We appropriate that for ourselves. And there came a second Adam, Jesus Christ. And so now you have what's called federal headship, right? Representative headship. You've got either you are in Adam or you are in Christ. There are two Adams here, ultimately, in Scripture. The one Adam that sinned and led to death or the one who came and did everything right and gives life. So which one are you in, Romans is telling us? Which one are you following? Who is your head? Who is your leader? And this must be Christ. And if Adam's not real, then doesn't that whole argument seem disingenuous? And if it seems disingenuous, even beyond that, can it even hold up if he's not real? And I believe not only is he's not real, but if death didn't enter in because of Adam's rebellion, then we have a real problem with how to interpret Romans chapter 5. A real problem with how to interpret it. And so when I look at it then, when I look at it, Genesis 1 has a plain reading. The Lord created this in six days. The Lord created this place in six days. By the way, that should not scare any of us. We're talking about the king of the universe who spoke it into existence. If he wanted to make it in 10 minutes, that would have been fine too, right? He would have no problem with that. You know, I joke about, I joke about, about how, you know how 
Jeff Foxworthy always made a joke about going to the moon. Y'all ever heard that joke? I hope, I hope you haven't because he's not, I mean, it's, it's fine. But he's, he says, you know, as a, uh, when you pack for your trip, I always say this to Allison, she's packing for like two days to go on a trip and I don't pack until it's time to go. Why? Because I can be ready to go to the moon in 30 minutes. Y'all ever heard that before? <laughs> so is. When it comes to the Lord, he can handle this in a moment and spoke it all into existence. He, cre he creates, I think, with apparent age even. And it's not, it's not any problem whatsoever for him to do so. He's God. He can do what he wants to. And so when I look at it, that's not the issue here. When I consider the science and things around it that's going to make argumentation, I just have to say, is God word my God's word my standard or is it not? And I... Good people can disagree. I'm just telling you how I came. You can disagree with me on this if you like. I'm just telling you how I came to this position to say it's the plain reading of the text. The scripture points to this to be true over and over and over again. And all of redemption is counting on the story of Genesis 1-1. And that to change that story in a different way is to pull the pen out of all of redemption the story of redemption, and the greater arc of Scripture. I hope that makes sense to y'all because as I go through, and the reason now maybe you can see, that's why I started there before I start teaching because I'm going to teach this from this angle of a 24-hour literal day creation position, of a young earth position. And I'm willing, of course, to listen to anybody um, that, that comes not throwing punches, but I'm willing... I'm willing to listen to it, but I believe with the plain reading of the text and the basis from other texts and other scripture pointing to this and the whole overarching arc of redemption found in Christ, that this is the best way to understand Genesis 1.1. If I'm wrong on this, I'm still going to be in heaven rejoicing one day. Amen? Amen. And so I don't want to be wrong on the fact that my God created everything and I'm under his rule and I need to follow him with my life. But I, I don't mind being wrong on some of these issues. I'm not, he's going to be like, Josh, you were wrong about six day literal creation. And I mean, oh shoot, this is great place. You know I mean? That's just, I may think about it for a second and I'm out. I'm good. You know? So um, that's why I wanted to start here with you. The last thing, and I'll close with this. I believe that as God created the universe, day seven was the day of rest. And I believe God meant, I believe God meant for that rest to continue. It wasn't as if day seven, rest is here, back at it. Because that rest doesn't mean take a nap. That rest means that you're at perfect peace. That you're at perfect peace with God, you're at perfect peace with creation. You're at perfect peace with each other, Adam and Eve, right? That rest means you're at perfect peace. And what happens at rebellion is Genesis 3, the great disturber of the peace, enters in. And when that peace is disturbed and broken, what we're longing for is day 7 again, right? 
What we're longing for is to be restored, to find that peace that was meant. Because I believe day seven tells us here that this peace was to be perpetual and that it was only lost because of the rebellion of his people. So what we're longing for is day seven again, when we will finally be in the garden that our Lord has prepared for us. For as Adam failed to do, he should have took the serpent, stomped his head, and kicked him out of the garden and said, don't ever come back again, you're dead, right? And he didn't. But Jesus did. When the serpent enters in, Jesus stomps him on the head, crushes his skull, and says, you are done, never to be in my presence again. And now he's welcoming his children into his rest. So just as you see with the Israelites, Hebrews chapter 4, don't fail to enter that rest. Don't fail to stay in that wilderness and stay in that wilderness. Come find the rest, that yoke that is easy, that burden that is light, that is found only in Christ. And the rest that all of creation was meant for, the rest that all of us long for and desire, as day seven points us to, is the rest that only Jesus can bring. That only Jesus can bring. And ultimately, ultimately, I'm looking for that rest, right? And to me, that's why Genesis 1-1 is so important. It tells us exactly what we are longing for and what we are looking for. So next week, I promise, <laughs> I promise we'll talk about Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. Those three words, and God said. That's it. That's all we're going to do. <laughs> when we do theology, when we do these things, we've got we've to learn how to handle God's word. And so tonight, my purpose is not just, I don't want to just rush through this. I want to teach you the process even of how we handle this and how we look at it and how we can study this together. Because the point is to not make us better scholars. The point is to make us better believers, better believers in Christ. Better believers in the God who saved, created us, made us, saved us, right? That's our point. Let's pray together. Father, help us to do just that. Help us to not just simply be better scholars of your word, but to be better believers. And the more we know your word, the more we trust you, the more we believe in you, the more we want to follow you and pursue you. God, help us to not just take for granted what the world says is fact, but help us to look to your word your word, God, and through the power of your spirit, teach us that. Teach us what truth is. And your word is truth. We thank you for this evening. We thank you for allowing us to be together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.